Lord Church. Hey man, it's good to be back. Uh, I've been on the road for the last couple of weeks. I know I've seen a few of you and uh, I've had a chance to share a little bit of updates of uh, what I've been up to the last couple of weeks. So I figured I'd bring a couple of pictures so that you can see what was going on. Um, the first, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, pretty much all June, I was kind of on the road. Um, and uh, the first thing I had a chance to participate in was a, a conference out in South Carolina. Uh, the picture that you see there is at Anderson University in South Carolina, and I was invited to help facilitate. I'm in like the top right corner on that staircase there, right in front of one of their beautiful buildings, um, to help facilitate a, a professional development conference for younger professionals who work at Christian colleges and universities. So it was an honor to represent uh, my college, Azusa Pacific University, as well as obviously wherever I go, I, re I represent our church family um, to help uh, pour into the lives of these young professionals uh, who work in different areas within a college setting and had a great time there in South Carolina. It was like muggy and hot, and uh, so it was nice to get there for a few days and then to get on a plane and get back out. Um, and then I came back for a couple days and then pretty quickly left to uh, Washington, Seattle, Washington, and uh, had a chance to participate. Uh, I'm sitting down there in the front um, in a leadership development institute that was hosted by an organization called the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And they invited me, which was a blessing and an honor, um, to be part of this cohort of leaders who uh, have aspirations to lead Christian colleges and universities. And so um, it was a blessing to be with other deans, vice presidents, and provosts who were there in a retreat, beautiful retreat center in the northern part of Washington. Actually, it was about a mile away from Canada. Um, and so we did a couple of hikes while we were there, and you could see uh, the other side, and see, you could see Canada from the place where we were. Uh, they had these really loud bullfrogs at night. They sounded like cows. I'm not even kidding. They were so loud. I had never heard anything like it before. I'm used to like the small frogs that we have over here where I live in like the Lakewood, Long Beach, Cerritos area. Uh, but those frogs were something else um, out there in Washington. And so here's a couple of pictures of some beautiful scenery there. Um, just had a chance to participate and every morning went on a nice uh, walk and just time with the Lord before I, I got to a chance to dive into uh, a pretty dense but uh, enriching curriculum that they led us through a lot of reading, a lot of conversation and discussion on leadership. Um, so grateful to have been a part of that. And then we got back and I took the family for a little vacation for about a week up to Hume Lake. I don't know if you've ever heard of Hume Lake, uh, which is uh, in central California in the Sequoia National Forest. And uh, just a beautiful, it's a man-made lake, but a beautiful opportunity to get up there and relax as a family. Um, got a chance to do a little bit of fishing. I, again, caught nothing. Um, but both of my boys caught fish, so uh, they were really excited. Um, we didn't have any Wi-Fi or cell phone service up there when, when we were, uh, so I left my phone in my room, and then I regretted it because my Kaya caught a fish. He's like, look, Dad, take a picture of it. I'm like, sorry, dude, mental picture. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so we did a little bit of fishing. We went and saw uh, the second largest tree in the world. Isn't that crazy? The, the General Grant tree which is in the Sequoia National Forest area. And we got a chance to uh, walk through a tree that had fallen that was kind of hollowed out and just a, a, just a neat experience to be surrounded by such beauty. Um, and in a lot of ways, one of the things I enjoyed about being there uh, with my family and we were just kind of walking around, hiking, in awe, looking up at these trees. Uh, the General Grant tree, by the way, is about 270 feet tall. And it's about 30 feet wide. Um, and it's, uh, it's almost 2,000 years old. Um, so to me, uh, there was just something beautiful and awe-inspiring being in this. And, and it's a grove. I'm telling you, like, you can't even count the number of sequoia trees that are there. But once you get out of that area, you don't see any. So they're really concentrated. There's a grove right there in that area. Um, and as I was, like, staring at these trees and reflecting on God, reflecting on faith, uh, I was starting to think, how many forest fires have come through this area? How many earthquakes have we had in the state of California? And yet these 2,000-year-old, 300-foot-tall, 30-foot-wide trees are still standing firm. And it reminded me of our faith that how often in life when we face fires and earthquakes and challenges, our roots are small. 
and our faith gets rocked and we start to ask big questions like, God, where are you, right? Why, why would you allow this fire to come through? And, and I thought to myself, I want to be like one of those. I want to be like one of those that, that can just stand firm in the Lord, no matter what comes our way, right? Uh, not intimidated by anything. Uh, just standing there, firm, right? Planted, rooted, right? That's something that we don't see a lot these days in our day and age. People want to move from one place to the next, right? They, they want to get rooted for a little while, but we, we kind of fit spiritually like to be potted rather than, rather than rooted, right? So that we could pick up our pot and move it wherever we want to go, as opposed to saying, I'm going to be right here for the next 2,000 years, like those sequoias. And I was inspired by that, um, by that resilience, right? To be able to say, no matter what comes my way, um, a lot of things change, but for the last 2,000 years, those guys that we just saw have been right there, which is awesome. And I, 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 pr- I hope and pray that we can be that way with the Lord. Amen? Uh, that no matter what comes our way, uh, that we can, we can stand firm, right, in the Lord, rooted, uh, that we can, uh, maybe our lives might be able to be an example so that when others, little saplings are coming by, they could look up and say, I want to be like that one day, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, and so we had a, we had a blast uh, traveling, but it is good to be back home, and it's good to be back uh, in the pulpit. Um, last week, they invited me on campus to go and say hello to some people uh, that were coming, our brand new orientation of new students that are coming to our university, and I found myself going on and on and on, because I'm like, man, I miss this. This is, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to interact with in that way in quite a while, so it's a, it's a blessing to be back here at Mission Ebenezer, and it's a, it's a blessing to get back into the Word of God. Amen? Um, so we've been going through uh, a series in the book of Romans for those who have been here on Sunday mornings, and we're going to continue in that series. Last week, Pastor Dozier brought a powerful message out of Romans chapter 10, and so we are making our way into the next chapter, chapter 11, and we, we are going to shift gears and move toward Romans chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out, open them up to Romans chapter 11, which is where our remarks will come from this morning. And I'd like to title the message this morning, VIP. Somebody say VIP. Have you ever been a VIP? You ever been uh, invited somewhere to where all of a sudden you get a pass or a name tag, uh, a badge, or whatever it is, a bracelet maybe? Um, so it reminds me, when we, went at, we had a chance to go to Hume Lake last week, as soon as we got there, one of my friends works there, and he's the one that invited me to, to bring Drea and the kids to come up for the week. And uh, we saw him. He gave us this nice basket, right? And the basket was filled with all kinds of treats, right? You had, like, uh, uh, gummy bears and water and coffee and all this different good stuff that's in this basket. And then part of the basket, he gave us five bracelets that we had to, or wristbands that we had to put on and, hold, and keep on the entire time that we were there. And, and the wristbands were gold. But, you know, I didn't see any other wristbands, so I didn't really know what the wristband meant. For all I knew, they only had one wristband. Um, so later on that evening, we're, you know, we weren't expecting all that. Um, but we, so we show up. We went to dinner. And for dinner, how many people are here? I'm like, okay, it's me and my, my, my wife and my three kids. There's five of us. And so they say, okay, it'll be, you know, $40, you know, for dinner tonight. So, okay. So I pull out my wallet and uh, paid for dinner. And uh, we went and had dinner. Uh, this beautiful uh, dining hall that overlooks the lake. And after dinner, uh, my buddy came up uh, who gave us the, the wristbands and said, hey, how was dinner? Oh, man, it was really good. We're talking about it. And he said, great, did you show him your wristbands? And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, if you show your wristband anywhere on this camp, you get whatever you ask for. Like the gold is like the, we have gold, we have silver, and then we have like three other levels. But you've got full access to everything. And I'm like, man, I got to go get my refund now. Because I, I didn't know he gave me VIP access, right? So we show up to the boathouse, and I'm like, hey, I, you know, what, what are the things we can rent? They're like, well, if, you know, you could pay this much, you get a rowboat. You pay this much, you get it. And then they're, oh, wait, you got gold wristbands? Whatever you want, you pick it. We'll put it out there for you in the water. We're like, all right, you know. So in that case, go ahead and put the motor on the, on the boat. Because last year I was paddling, and, and I got kind of tired. I'm going to go ahead and use the motor this time, right? Uh, but we got treated like VIPs, right? What does VIP stand for? Anybody know? A very important person, right? Feels good to be treated as a VIP. 
Um, and for some of us, it's kind of awkward because you're not used to being treated that way, or at least I'm not used to being treated that way. I was trying to figure out how to ask for things like, uh, is it okay if, never mind, let me just raise my hand. See that wristband? Thank you. Okay. So I kind of got used to it, right? Uh, by the time that we left this camp, I was driving around expecting other people to treat me like VIP, but they're like, yeah, that wristband doesn't mean anything when you're off this uh, campground, right? Um, and so my kids kept wearing it for a week, like hoping that like it would somehow open up new doors for them, but it didn't help them out. They still had to clean their room when they got back home and all that good stuff. But it, it's, it kind of reminds me of flying first class. Have anybody, has anybody flew, flown first class before? I haven't. I was just checking to see which one of you have money because uh, you should be giving bigger offerings when we, uh, when we get to that point. I, I've never flown first class before. I, in fact, when I flew to South Carolina a few weeks ago, they are making these seats smaller and smaller, or I'm getting bigger, but let's just imagine that they're, they're making them smaller and smaller, but my knees didn't even fit in front of me. Like, I had to keep moving sideways, like if I was skiing the entire trip, because going straight, we wouldn't work, and then I was cramped between the people to my left, and the people on my left and my right wanted to use the elbow rest. It's almost like you should come up with an agreement at the beginning of the coach flight where you kind of like agree on a certain percentage of the flight. You get the rest at like for these first 30 minutes and then I get the rest, you know, like set a timer or something like that. But they took over the elbow rest and I'm the biggest dude and I'm in the middle in B, you know, 27B. Uh, and I had to wait to be the last person to board the plane. By the time I got on, there was no more room in the overhead compartment for my, my luggage. So I'm like, Walked up to the walked to the back of the plane, then I had to walk back to the front of the plane. And the people in first class, they got their own curtain to close them off so they don't have to see the rest of us in the back. Their seats are twice as big, right? I mean, they've got an L-shaped like seat, you know, like a sofa in the first class, right? All of their snacks and drink is included. You know, they don't have to pay extra for anything. Like they get to board first and they get to uh, 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 deplane first, right? Uh, they get special warm towels, right? And, and the rest of us get the napkins from the from the bathrooms in the back, right? That you have to use the warm water to make your own warm towel. Or am I the only one that does that? Maybe that's just me. All that to say, it's kind of nice to be treated like a first class citizen, isn't it? So let me bring it home a little bit. You're like, okay, what does this have to do with Romans chapter 11? I'm getting there, okay? Bear with me. Um, so let's bring it home a little bit. How many of you have a favorite child? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Uh, you were about to get yourself in big trouble right now, right? Because both of your kids are sitting next to you right now, and you're about to out yourself. Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about favoritism. Favoritism. We're talking about VIP status, what it's like to be treated as VIP, and, and what it's like to, ex, to experience favoritism. Now, let me ask you a few questions. We're going to make this somewhat interactive. Um, what, happens, what happens when we show favoritism? What happens? What are some things that take place? Go ahead and shout it out. And if the, the video can't pick up, then I'll make sure that I say whatever you say so that those who are watching online can be part of this conversation as well. So what happens when we show favoritism? I heard jealousy. What else? Hatred. Okay. Resentment, uh-huh, bitterness, anger, hate, tension, conflict, entitlement. This side is quiet. Let me get some responses from this side over here. All of you over here have been treated as a favorite, so you don't know how to reflect on favoritism because you're like, well, that was me, so I'm not going to throw myself under the bus. Right? David raised his hand. He's like, I got the wristband. I got the bracelet. Yeah. Well, what happens when, when we show favoritism? Envy. Yeah. Yeah, all of these words that we just threw out there are, are very important, and that happens when we show favorites, right? Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis where he was treated as the favorite of his father Jacob, and, and as a result, his brothers hated him. And they hated him so badly that they couldn't wait to get rid of him. Right? And so they sold him into slavery and lied to his dad and told his dad that his favorite son had been killed by a wild beast. I mean, that's the extent of the kind of implications of favoritism, right? When, when favoritism is shown, right, 
for, for those who are not treated as the favorite, you get that, that sense of resentment and bitterness, and, and you're kind of like, why do they get all the special treatment, and why do they get to do this and I never do, or why do they go there and I never went there, and, 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 and you know, I know some people feel that way about, like, the youngest child in the family, because oftentimes, like, so let, let's just talk about that, I'm the youngest, all right? Let's just talk about it from an economic perspective. By the time I was born, it gave my parents a chance to make more money. So, so I got more stuff. No, I'm just kidding. No, still, even for me, I still got all the hand-me-downs, right? The difference, though, is that I enjoyed them, right? I couldn't wait to have Josh's stuff or Dave's stuff because I had two awesome older brothers. Uh, but when we look at a family where favoritism exists, that creates all kinds of issues. Somebody say amen. And, and I, I raise this. Simply because, as we're taking a look at Romans chapter 11, essentially what Paul begins to talk about with the church in Rome is this issue of favoritism. And he starts to talk about it because there were two uh, primary groups or, or multi, multiple cultures within the church of Rome, but the two groupings were Jews and Gentiles that were in the church in Rome. Um, before we get all the way into chapter 11, let me do a little bit of kind of backing up so that we can understand a little bit of what's happening in this flow of argumentation in Paul's letter, uh, because the Romans, as we find it in the Bible, is really a letter that Paul wrote, a pastoral letter that he's writing to this church in Rome, and he's giving them instruction, he's giving them wisdom, he's kind of teaching them how to live the Christian life, how to live in community, and so he, he addresses a number of different things throughout the book of Romans. And when we, when we study the book of Romans, the first eight chapters are really Paul's way of explaining the gospel and what it means, right? And he gets into detail, right? He, he, chapter 3 goes all the way back, and, and chapter 3 is saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He starts to talk a little bit about those God has chosen to be part of the family of God. We get into chapter 6, and chapter 6 is saying, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Chapter 7 then takes us to that next step and says, but what about this sin thing? Because even though Jesus has already died on the cross and has forgiven our sins, we still struggle with it. What's up with that? Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. I, I'm trying to do this one thing, and I never do it. And the stuff that I'm trying not to do, I end up doing. And he's like, what's going on with me? So chapter 8 is essentially Paul's way of saying, don't worry about it. If you're stuck in that cycle of sin, guess what? Jesus' love is so big, so powerful, that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, right? And so Paul is teaching them all the way up to chapter 8 that even though we struggle with this sin issue, we're, we're lucky, we're blessed, we're, we're, we're filled with hope because Jesus hasn't given up on us just yet, and he lives in us. So then it kind of takes a little bit of a, a, a shift in gears as we move into the next few chapters. Chapter 9, he begins talking a little bit about this issue that we're going to continue exploring today, which is, so how do we understand the difference between Jews and Gentiles within this new Christian church? Does everybody know that the church was brand new by the time we're reading this letter that Paul's writing to the church in Rome? It's, it's not a, 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 an entity that's been around for a really long time. There was Judaism. And then there was all these other pagan religions in Rome and in Greece. And here we find this kind of new thing, this new thing where all of a sudden people are worshiping Jesus as God, okay, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. And they were having some disagreements within the church, right? There were some Jews that felt like they were better than the Gentile Christians. And there were some Gentile Christians that felt like they were better than the Jews, and Paul's like, hey, we got to straighten this thing out, okay? Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, are you ready for this? There are no VIPs. When it comes to the kingdom of God, each of us have access to the same Christ. It don't matter if you grew up in the church or this is your first time in a church. It doesn't matter if you've memorized the Bible in Hebrew and Greek or whether you've never opened up a Bible. It doesn't matter if you've lived a life that you would consider quote-unquote good, or if you've lived a life where you've done some things that you regret and that you're ashamed of. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level.
And the invitation of Christ is for all of us to have access to this brand new life. Right? Jesus doesn't discriminate in that regard. He doesn't have a preference for a particular continent or country or skin color or language. Jesus loves us because we are each created in the image of God. And so Romans, Paul is trying to make the case to the church in Rome that there are groups of people that think that they're more special than others. And, and Paul wants to say this. It's kind of like the message that we probably learned in kindergarten, right? When uh, Nana and I, this is a famous story that we have here at Sunday School, the Mission Ebenezer Family Church, circa 1989. Uh, we both took our work to my grandma, who was our Sunday School teacher, and we said, look at my drawing. Isn't my drawing awesome? She says, yes, mijo, you're drawing. My grandma, mommy, she's over there. Her picture's in the lobby. Yes, mijo, your drawing is beautiful. And then Nana comes and says, look at my drawing. Isn't my drawing beautiful? And, and she says, yes, your drawing is very beautiful. And then we both look at her and said, which one is better? And then, of course, her wise response was, they are both beautiful, mijo, right? Because she was letting us know that we're both special, which basically means neither of us are special. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But for whatever reason, in our culture, we always find ourselves in a, in a, in a place where we're trying to compare ourselves to see whether or not we have a special status. And the Jews and the Gentiles were no different. And so in chapter 9, this is where that shift takes place, and uh, and it my dad, if he were up here, and, and he's going to be preaching in the Spanish service, so if you want to go deeper, you can stick around and, and, uh, and hang out for the Spanish service. Um, but he'll always refer to this section in Romans between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Verse, chapters 1 through 8 is called the indicative, which essentially means what has happened. Right? The indicative means Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and what that means is that we have access to forgiveness of sin. It's the explanation of the gospel. Chapter 9 forward is kind of a shift where it says, now then how do we live in light of that information that we had in chapters 1 through 8? What is the expectation? That's called the imperative. So how, how are we to then live our lives that's consistent with the gospel that we heard presented in chapters 1 through 8? Does that make sense? Okay, so indicative and imperative. So chapter 9 is shifting gears, basically saying, okay, now that we've covered the gospel, now that we've understood what it all means, now how are we going to live? How do we interact with each other? How do we live as a body of Christ? That's why when we get to chapter 12, which is next week, we start talking about multiple gifts in the body. We all have a contribution, right? So Paul's, from this point on, starting to talk through how do we then live out? How do we reflect the truths of chapters 1 through 8? What does that look like in a day-to-day basis. Does that make sense? And I'm glad that Paul does that because often in our own Christian lives, we can get so stuck in good doctrine and good theology and understanding uh, scriptural interpretation so well that if we don't think about the implications of how that translates to a life that reflects Jesus, then we could be theologically smart and ethically idiots. We could treat people like trash even though we dress up our best and show up on time for church and stay late after church and, and get here 20 minutes early to pray so that while people are walking in, they can see how holy we are with a, on our knees in front of everybody. Right? We can prioritize all these pietistic holy things, but if it doesn't translate to how we treat people, then we've missed the essence of the gospel. So Paul spends chapters 1 through 8 saying, get it right, right? And then chapters 9 forward says, live it right, right? And so, so, so the, the, the shift then into chapter 9 is, uh, listen to what he says in verse 6 um, in, in chapter 9. And we're not going to spend too much time here. I'm just trying to catch us up so that we can really get into chapter 11 for the next few minutes. Um, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are descendants of Abraham are they all Abraham's children. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So here in chapter 9, you can imagine they're reading this letter, and all of a sudden the Gentiles are saying, Yeah, 
See? It's like when the kids get into an argument and the parents come and their point matches with one of the kids' points and the other, and they start rubbing it in, right, to the other one. Saying, see, told you, right? So the Gentiles are like, see, told you. You're not special just because you're uh, ethnically Jewish. Doesn't make you special. See what Paul says here in chapter 9, right? Okay, so then let's get to chapter 10. It says, no one, or this is my interpretation, no one, neither Jew nor Gentile, can establish their own righteousness apart from God. Now, last week, as I mentioned, Pastor Dozier preached, and he reminded us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, somebody say everyone. Say it one more time, everyone. Everyone means everyone, that all of a sudden now the gospel is available to every and anyone. I think that's awesome, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, okay? So now if we get to the end of chapter 11, we might be thinking to ourselves, all right, great. So now what we're seeing here is, and this is the conclusion that some of the the Christians in Rome were starting to make, particularly the Gentile Christians, right? That all of a sudden now, it, it is no longer of value to be Jewish. Um, that if all of a sudden now we have, everyone has access to the same gospel, then it, we're no longer VIP, no longer special, uh, no longer chosen, no longer set apart. And, and so Paul's trying to deal with this dynamic. Where you have a group of folks who are thinking, man, we used to be in this level and this status, and now all of a sudden we kind of got dropped down a little bit, and it seems like these other folks have been elevated. These Gentile Christians now seem to kind of have the advantage, and Paul's trying to figure out how to navigate this family meeting within the church of Rome. So let me ask the question then. Uh, well, actually, let's, let's read the scripture, and then I'll ask the question. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, Paul says. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So this is Paul making the case from the outset in Romans chapter 11. That God has not forgotten his people, right? That just because the Gentiles have been invited into this special relationship does not mean that the Jews no longer have a special relationship. Does that make sense? Right? And so he's trying to communicate that. So, so, so my question then is, do Jews still have a special status with regard to God? This is a good question for us to ask, okay? Um, I'll reflect a little bit on that, but I really want to apply that to this context because the majority of us, if not all of us in here, are Gentile Christians. So this matter, I hope there's nobody in here, and if there is, then maybe we should have some conversation and do some discipleship in this regard, but I hope there's nobody in here who harbors negative feelings toward the Jewish race. I hope all of us in here recognize that God has called us to love all persons, and in fact, because of the fact that we've been handed this gospel truth through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through Jesus our Savior, all of whom are Jewish, that we should have the utmost respect for our brothers and sisters who are Jewish. There's no room for hatred. There's no room for animosity, right? There's no room for us to, to, to develop anti-Semitic ideologies, right? That we are not called to that. Amen? Can we, can we, can we get that out of the way? So assuming that that's not here, what I, what I think might be here that we need to work on, that Paul is addressing, is this idea that every once in a while, because of the fact that we desire a special status with God, we can allow ourselves to be closed off to seeing others that God is hoping to invite into the body of Christ. So maybe it's not so much the Jew-Gentile thing in our context today, but maybe it's more so those who have yet to meet Christ compared to those who have been walking in faith for a really long time. Can I just call out a couple of real-life examples? Families who've decided to leave our church. And, I, and again, leaving church is, is, 
is something that you have to pray about. I'm not saying that's like the biggest sin in the world, but families who have decided to leave a church, and I'm not even talking recently, this is years ago, and the main reason why they chose to leave the church is because our youth ministry had a vision to reach the lost and those who have never had an experience in church before. And so our youth was uh, actively reaching out to gang members, to kids who smoke weed and skateboard and, and party, and we want to reach them to share the gospel with them. And because we reached them and share the gospel with them, certain families decided they wanted to leave because they didn't want their kids interacting with those kids. Is it all right if I just call it like it is? So maybe our issue isn't so much the Jew-Gentile dynamic. Maybe the issue is thinking we're better than people because maybe they haven't been walking with Christ as long as we have. Or maybe because they live in a different neighborhood than we live in. Or maybe because they don't have both parents at home. Or maybe because whenever they come to church, this might be the only place where they got a meal that week. I know some people who decide to move to another church because they didn't like the way the, the, the row that they were used to sitting in smells because somebody who comes and worships with us doesn't have a place to call their own home. And they'd rather go to a church where it smells better. What I have to say about that is, this is the kind of stuff that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 11. Doesn't matter who we are, where we're from, none of us are called to be VIP over anybody else in the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus says it this way. Jesus turns it around. He says, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So if anything, those who are treated as outcasts in the world, in the body of Christ, should be treated as VIP. That's why the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They messed up their social orientation. Right? Jesus was constantly looking for people who were forgotten with eyes of giving them a gold bracelet, right? And letting them know, hey, come with me, man. Come on, sit right here. Don't sit over there. Come over here, sit right here. Right? Because we do that. For whatever reason, uh, human nature, we, we stratify, we create a hierarchy, right? And we want to be as high on that stratification and hierarchy as possible. And Paul says, hey, guys, Jesus loves Gentiles, but just because he loves Gentiles doesn't mean he loves Jews any less. Does that make sense? Um, so here's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is if we go all the way back to Genesis, which is where a lot of this kind of theology begins, God called Abram to leave his father's house. And he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he says, through you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. And so the, the kind of called out, set apart, special nature was never meant to be a status, but it was meant to be a responsibility. It was never meant to be an, a, a, a particular identity. It was meant to be a stewardship principle that God had given them a particular role in his salvation purposes. And yet, over time, it turned out to being more of an identity and a privilege and an entitlement. So Paul is saying here, none of us were entitled to that. We can't meet God in our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of God, which only comes through Jesus Christ. So then it continues to bring us back to that question. So what? how do we then understand this kind of unique Romans 11 uh, uh, discussion about who's special and why? Okay, let me ask you a question. How many baseball fans are here? Any baseball fans? All right. So right now in the major leagues, there are a number of uh, major league baseball players who are the sons of former major league baseball players. Uh, a couple examples. Fernando Tatis Jr., right? His, his father was a major league baseball player. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., his father was a major league baseball player. Uh, Bo Bichette, his father. Uh, even Cody Bellinger, his father, was a Major League Baseball player. So I might ask the question to kind of help us understand this by way of analogy. Does being the son of a former Major League Baseball player guarantee that you will be a Major League Baseball player one day? Okay, so the answer is clearly no. 
right? It's not a guarantee, okay? Let me ask the second question then. Does being the son of a former Major League Baseball player give you advantage to potentially become a Major League Baseball player? Okay, so the answer is yes. So this is good survey data that we're collecting this morning, right? Our first answer is just because you're born into that family doesn't mean you're guaranteed access, right? Um, but we do recognize that if you are born into that family, that there is a distinct advantage, right? Do we see that so far? So I think that's the kind of logic that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11. What he says is simply this. Just because you're born into a particular family doesn't mean you have access to salvation. But if you grew up in a family where you're understanding Torah, where you worship in the synagogue, where you understand uh, others of these various laws, then that is, that has a potential to give you an advantage to understanding then what it means to follow Christ. Because there's, there's carryover. There's a connecting point. So what he's saying is there is still a distinct advantage. However, there's no guarantee of salvation by virtue of your birth. Right? Similarly, our kids, right? If our kids are, are born to us and we bring them to vacation Bible school and we take them to Sunday school and we raise them up in the ways of the Lord, then there is a higher likelihood that one day they will make a decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. But because Joseph, Ruthie, and Micaiah are my children, it does not guarantee that they will have salvation in Jesus Christ. They have to come to a point in their life where they need to decide, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I want to uh, uh, repent of my sin and invite Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, and I want to live for him with my life. And if my children make that decision, then they will have access to salvation. But their last name doesn't give them salvation. Their DNA doesn't give them salvation. And Paul is making the case in Romans chapter 11, nobody's DNA is going to give them access to salvation. But it doesn't mean there aren't advantages. So I'll finish with this story and we'll get ready for um, uh, to, to spend some time coming around the table um, and, and receiving communion. So Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Matthew that I believe is kind of like a, a corollary with Romans chapter 11, and it comes out of Matthew chapter 22. So if you're a note taker, we're not going to read the entire chapter right now. We're running short on time, but you can jot it down in your notes, Matthew chapter 22. If you want to take a look at that story to see the connecting point between what Paul's talking about in Romans 11 and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 22. And the story that Jesus shares in Matthew 22 is a story of a king whose son was getting ready to be married. So the prince was going to have a wedding. And, uh, and so the, uh, the RSVPs for the prince's wedding, for this royal wedding, were sent out to some of these dignitaries and those who had high status, and those who were used to being invited to being part of things like royal weddings. And, uh, and the invitations went out, and they said, please RSVP, bye. They gave them the RSVP date, right? Uh, people got the invitation to the wedding and threw it away. And so the king was kind of upset. I mean, he spent a lot of money on the caterer and made sure that the best of the best band was there to play at this wedding feast and had all of the preparations made for this wonderful room full of distinguished guests to come in and enjoy themselves at the king's expense. And the day for the party came and they opened up the doors and the balloons were blown and the music was playing and the tables were set and the buffet was brought out and nobody showed up. And so the king says to the servants, hey, go out from here and go find people. It doesn't matter who they are, anyone, and invite them and tell them we've got a feast ready to go with great music and we're going to have a wonderful wedding party. And he sent them out. And so the servants went out and they started inviting randos. You know what randos mean, right? Random people. They started inviting people. They didn't, hey, I want you to come to this thing. Wait, what? Do I got to change first? No, just come. Just come like that. All right, cool. So they started going here. One of the passages says it goes through the highways and the byways, right? They started bringing in all kinds of people to come on in, right? And they come in, 
and they enjoy themselves, and they ate like they've never eaten before, and they dance, and they're laughing, right? And all of a sudden, the king is like, great, the food did not go to waste. Those who were originally invited said no, therefore it made room for others who didn't get an invitation to come on in. What Paul is saying here is the initial rejection of the gospel by the Jews has created an openness for us Gentiles to have access to Jesus Christ. Right? Okay, so let me finish this analogy, and I'm going to kind of, this isn't in Matthew 22, so recognize this is my words. I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm just having some fun with it. I want you to imagine now that the, the, uh, the guests who were not originally invited were there having such a great time. And then while they were there at the wedding party of the prince, they start acting a fool. Some of you have some friends like that. Whenever you invite them over, they're fine after the first drink, but never mind. Let's not go too deep. But I want you to imagine that these people who got invited were starting to act a fool, right? Because they got a little too comfortable at this party, right? They're like, oh, man, we can do whatever we want, wherever we want, however we want. And all of a sudden, they get bounced from the party. Why? Because the king's like, hey, I invited you to come, but I didn't invite you to come over here and make a scene, right? Know how to handle yourself in a space like this. Like, if you're going to act a fool, you're going to have to go ahead and get the step in. And what, what Paul says at the end of chapter 11 is he says, some of us Gentile Christians, now that we've been invited and we've been given access to the gospel, start thinking that we're better than the Jews. And what Paul's saying is there's no room for that. There's no room. In fact, like I said earlier, there's no VIPs. We're all at the same place at the foot of the cross. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers to make their way forward as we get ready to uh, have a, a moment of community. Um, this actually, what we're getting ready to do, is kind of like a, a tangible practice that puts into motion the principles that we talked about today. Let me explain what I mean by that. When the body of Christ gathered together around a meal, the Eucharist meal, the meal to give thanks, they called it a love feast. When the family of God gathered together and they broke bread together, this was something that didn't happen commonly in those days. Uh, people were often separated by ethnicity, separated by religion, separated by all kinds of things. And yet, when they gathered as the early church, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds them, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or free, uh, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, we all gather and we eat at the same table. Isn't that cool? So this morning, we have an invitation to eat at the same table. And the invitation doesn't come from me, but it comes from Jesus. What we're reminded of in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that when we come forward, and by the way, all in a moment will be invited uh, to partake in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the beautiful thing is... Uh, if you are willing to acknowledge that you have sin in your life and you are making a decision to say, Lord, I don't want that anymore. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to live my life in such a way that brings you glory and brings you honor. And if you have a repentant heart this morning, then you'll be invited to receive of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what you've done, whether it be the last 10 years, last year, last month, last week, or even last night, here you are invited to join us at the table of Jesus Christ. There is grace for you. Somebody say amen. There is mercy for us sinners. Somebody say amen. In fact, his mercies are brand new. How often? Every morning with the rising of the sun is a reminder of his new mercies for us. Amen. And so if you'd like to receive of his uh, mercy, I would like to invite you uh, in a moment to begin making your way forward. And ushers, we can go ahead and begin to...
dismissed. Would you please stand?
1 Corinthians 11 says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may take the cup. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for what this body and blood represent, which is your sacrifice that you made for us, that through you we might find forgiveness of sin and salvation of our souls. So with gratitude in our hearts, we recognize this gift. We don't take it for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for living in a way that doesn't reflect your glory. Teach us to live according to your will. And Lord, we thank you as we studied in Romans 11 that each of us has been given this beautiful invitation to walk with you regardless of where we're from. Forgive us when we have spiritual pride or cultural ethnic pride that causes us to see ourselves as better than someone else. There's no room for that in your kingdom. Instead, the first will be last and the last will be first. Work with us in our hearts that we might reflect this truth in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. God bless you, church.